Good morning. Blessed indeed to be here this morning. The reason we're blessed is, as Andy shared, the Word of God can speak to our hearts and to our lives and to our souls today. We have access to that, that it might freely have its place in our heart and life. And that's, that's my prayer and hope this morning. That would continue forward, that the Word would be manifest. For the study this morning, for the sermon, I felt led to look into Philippians, the book of Philippians, and maybe even just go through the entire book, not all today, but to start today, in chapter 1. And it kind of intrigued me that Brother Eric shared a key verse already from the text and probably didn't even know it, that he who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's a verse that we'll read from the text today. In Philippians 1, the, the theme for this message is joyfully consecrated to Christ. Joyfully consecrated to Christ. And there's power in the thought of that with, with the Apostle Paul because he is joyfully consecrated to Christ in the setting that he's in. And he's in bonds when he writes this, this letter. He's in prison because of his faith, because of what he believes. Yet as you read this, this entire letter, is, is very uplifting. He delights in what the Lord is doing with the church at Philippi. It's a joy to him. And you can sense that in his writing. And this, this letter is, is very encouraging. i give a little bit of a background of the city of Philippi. It was a Roman colony that was located in northern Greece. It was originally conquered by Philip II of Macedon. He conquered it from Thrace, enlarged it, and strengthened it, and put his name on it. Philippi, from King Philip. Philippi was Alexander the Great's father, anyone that's a history buff. It was a thriving commercial center, and at a crossroads between Europe and Asia. It's considered this is the first church plant in Europe, actually. And as we realize that King Philip saw a great value in this city because it was at the crossroads, because it was an epic trade center. I think really all the more our Lord saw it as a valuable place too to have a church established and thrive because people would come and go from that area. The church would begin in that epic center and it was a vital way for the gospel of His Son to spread. And I believe that's why it was a valuable place. It consisted mostly of, of Gentile believers. And that's why as we read through this, we find that Paul doesn't quote quite so much from the Old Testament in this letter or draw from it as he would in Hebrews because the most of the believers there at Philippi are, are Gentiles. And that really in itself is a, is a miracle. If we think about the Greek pantheon of gods and what they had established in their psyche and their mentality for generations, Greek and Rome and all those, those European nations around, a lot of there's a scientific study on some of the pantheon of gods, and really they, they derive some of their beliefs from some of the, like Zeus and some of the others, I forget it all, but they, they actually almost drew up like the, the villains of the Bible that we would know and saw them as strong. As in Cain was, was one of the, the background of one of the gods. Nimrod was the background of one of the gods because he, he had these vast cities and was powerful and slew and, and that became the, the carnal mindset of the false gods. And yet here's a church based on Jesus Christ. The power of Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit that could turn all that up on its head. As, as Jesus told, told Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And, and the church spreads so rapidly in this time. It's, it's nothing short of a miracle. Let's read through Philippians um, verses 1 through 19. I'll stop there and maybe continue if we have more time. I know there's a lot of reading, but Philippians 1 through 19. Paul is writing, it says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, 
always in every prayer of mine for you, all making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, under the glory and praise of God. But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached? And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ." We'll discontinue there, and this is sort of an expository approach to Scripture. We'll back up to verse 1 and kind of go through some of this, of what's, what Paul, we believe, is saying and feel that he is saying. We go back to verse 1. He says this letter is written to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Boy, as you read that, it almost seems like maybe the bishops and deacons are not saints. But I don't believe that's a proper interpretation. I really believe what is, what is meant by that statement is that there's structure there, the church in Philippi, and there's harmony. Above and beyond all things, there's, there's a harmony that he sees and is blessed by. And there's, there's power to that in that opening verse. Kind of interesting, the, the term bishop was a Greek word. It wasn't, didn't really start with a church that just meant overseer. And it was used generally before it was used in the church. But grace and peace are linked together here. Can you have true peace without the grace of God? It'd be kind of hard to find, wouldn't it? Not true peace. Not true peace. Without the grace of God, grace and peace be with you all. You know, the Bible talks about Jesus as being the hidden man of the heart that we follow after in meekness and in quietness. In regards to peace, 1 Thessalonians 4.11 challenges us to study to be quiet, to do your own business and to work with your own hands. Walk honestly toward them which are without. Study to be quiet. That, that refers to, to a peaceable heart, I think, a stilled, a stilled heart, not, not a noisy heart of trouble and clamor. But by studying the Word, we find a place of peace in our heart and in our life to do our own business and work with our own hands. The Philippians apparently were thought of with joy by Paul. And that's, that's evident in this letter. I think it was a delight to him as he found himself in bonds and I know at times, I'm not sure if that's the case here, but it probably was. He would have been chained to his guards or chained to other prisoners and not very free at all. Yet, as he wrote these letters and sent them out, it was a delight and a joy to him to know that the gospel was spreading and that he was able to share the gospel to his guards, to other prisoners, to set them free, and that these letters were also bearing fruit. 
And he knew that. He could sense that. It was a delight, delight to him. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine of you, making requests with joy. He was thankful and grateful and joyful for the springing up of the church of Jesus Christ. It seemed to be beyond the walls of Judaism. As Jesus came, it seemed like the most obvious place for Christianity to take off was with the Jews. And they dropped the ball. They were looking for a carnal savior. They were looking for someone that would establish an earthly kingdom. And they missed it. But how much of a delight it must have been to the Apostle Paul and to others of the disciples to see the church of Jesus Christ take place in Gentile lands, to spring up over here and over there and to really take off. I'm sure they really wished it would happen to their own countrymen as well, but it was a joy to see it be established and to go. Here in prison, Paul is exuberant for the church's growth. He was joyfully consecrated to Christ in his trials. Verse 6 is kind of the key verse of the whole, whole first chapter. He shares of the Philippians, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. In our times of discouragement or setbacks and trials and temptations, do we have that confidence? I wrote confidence down in capital letters. Confidence in he who has begun a, a good work in the lives of believers, that he will complete it. Do we have that confidence personally within our heart and within our life? He will finish it. God will not quit. He will see you through. He will see you through. Have that confidence. In the beginning of a good work in believers, I'm not sure if I shared this at the baptism last week or not, but we look at the creation account in Genesis, and that was brought up already today. The creation account, in six days he created all that we see and know, and he's been working on heaven maybe for 2,000 years. How wonderful will that be? We think about things earthly. He created all the animals, the animal kingdom, the earth itself, separated light from darkness. In six days and on the seventh day, he rested, and it was complete, correct? There's nothing new on this earth then from that point forward. Ken Ham has a study on, on different species and how there's maybe adaptations that come from that species group, and that might even be possible a little bit with people to a degree. Might be a little taller or shorter, or look a little different than they originally did, but for the most part, creation was done, but yet... He's not done creating, is He? He's creating new men and new women out of old ones every day. A new heart. He's in the business of creation still today for you and for me. Isn't that a blessing? Isn't that a blessing? The confidence that we have that when that work is begun, it is completed by Him and He doesn't stop. There's a song, He's Still Working On Me. Forget how it goes. Took Him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the Son, the planets, Jupiter and Mars, but He's still working on me. How patient, how tender, how loving and kind He must be. He's still working on me. Ezekiel 36, 26 relates to this. He's speaking to the nation of Israel, and this can be paralleled to us as believers as well. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. I'd like to turn to Psalm 139, 13, verses through 18. And as I think about that in Ezekiel, do you think Paul understood that? Who was Paul before his conversion? Saul of Tarsus. He wasn't the apostle Paul, was he? 
He knows what it means to be born again, to have a new heart. And to see that develop in the lives of other people was an absolute joy and delight to him. Psalm 138. I'd like to read verses 13 through 18. This is kind of a comfort and consolation to us. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. Wow, that's powerful. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. And I guess you could say when I awake, God is still with me. He is omnipotent, omnipresent. And I also thought of the word could mean still is in peace again. I am still, I am calm because of God. I'm calm because of His presence in my life. Confident in Him. Our confidence is in Him and not the flesh. Praise God for that. Let's return back to Philippians. In verses 3 through 7, these statements, we often read them personally, and I believe that's good and okay. But this letter is written collectively to the, to the believers, to the church as a whole. And we can read it that way also. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, your fellowship in the gospel from this day, first day until now, being confident what God has begun a work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. He has plans for His church body as well to show the light of truth collectively for the church of Jesus Christ, for all believers, to, to show the light of truth that others might be brought to the knowledge of truth and that we might be cleansed from sin and have newness of life in our own heart and in our own lives in our soul. He seeks to sanctify us as well, to sanctify the church and to sanctify our hearts. A process of time, a process of continually working, and that's something we can be confident in with our heart and soul. Hebrews 9.14 says, when it was talking, he was challenging, Paul was writing this letter too, challenging the Jewish people about the blood of bulls and of goats and of the red heifer and everything. He says, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through his eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Well, here there's a contrast, dead works and living God. And the purging of our conscience, we often think of our soul being purged and cleansed, our lives being purged and cleansed. What about our conscience? That necessary vital part of us that, that pricks us of wrong, that, that can correct our path if it's set upon the word of God, how the, our conscience can be purged. How sharp is the word of God to do that? It can excise and take out a stony heart and put within us a heart of flesh, a new spirit, and purge even our conscience. Do we have our conscience purged? Verse 8 shows his solicitude for the church. That's kind of a big word for care and concern. How greatly I long after you all. Seemed like in prison, if he could fly, he could fly right there to Philippi and sit among them and sing and praise God and Share with him about the word and share with him in fellowship. That seems to be his heart. Joyfully consecrated to Christ is even seeing in prison, as Paul did. Think of the new heart he was given. As Saul of Tarsus was not a joyful person, most likely. 
He was a religious, exacting, legal-minded Pharisee. Garments were cast at his feet when Stephen was stoned. He consented to it. He didn't throw a stone, but he consented to it. Paul had a stony heart, excised and a heart of flesh given him. He knew a born-again life. He knows the experience of that. Someone once asked the country boy, said, what difference has Jesus Christ made in your life, really, to a young boy? The boy said, well, I feel better now when I feel bad than I used to feel when I felt good. You know, that's kind of a simple term, but maybe there's a lot to that. I feel better now when I feel bad than I used to feel when I felt good. In a sense, what God has to give is better than what the world gives. That's basically, in a nutshell, what was stated there. Out of the mouths of babes, that's ordained praise often. We live here in the land of, of Kansas, the land of Oz. I don't know if many of you are familiar with the Wizard of Oz and the movie of that, but Dorothy was taken up, her house was taken, it's ramshackle, black and white, beginning of that movie. It's taken up in a tornado and scary, and it gets set down in this different place. You open the door, and instantly there's color. She's in the land of Oz. Well, that's kind of how the newness of life in Christ is. Instantaneous color. Joy, joyful color. God brings color of joy, abundance of joy to our heart and to our life. Completely new, completely changed, completely transformed, a different experience, different perspective on life. You see things differently and, and understand things differently. God colors our life with joy. Verse 9 was kind of challenging me a little bit. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more in knowledge and in all judgment. I thought about that a little bit. Knowledge is, you know, to learn more about, that love may abound in our knowledge, that we learn more about love. That we can understand, but how do you, how do you love in judgment? Can we love in judgment? And judgment is kind of a hard term. I'm not sure if I can really portray this the way I intend to, but we, we make judgment calls when we sit down at a restaurant and order something. We, it's, it's really discernment. I looked into the New King James and other versions. They use the word discernment there, and I really feel like it fits better. We discern. But suppose you sat down at a, at a restaurant and the waiter came by and you wanted a T-bone steak, and it says, well... And what waitress would say, well, why not the clam chowder? Well, I want the T-bone steak. That's what I, I want to have. Well, why not the clam chowder? Finally, they throw up their arms and say, nobody ever wants the clam chowder. Everybody wants the steak and the chicken, and nobody ever wants the clam chowder. Well, to some degree, that's, that's kind, of, kind of the way it is in our society, really. Equity is valued over righteousness, if you think about it. And really, everyone should sit down and just get a little bit of something, of everything off the menu so nothing's ever left out. Now, as I thought about that, I was challenged by Corbin had an opening a few weeks ago about suppose there's a man outside with a, I forget how you had him painted up, colored hair, spiked hair, nose rings, earrings, whatever, chains, the whole nine yards. And how do you think about that person? Well, we discern, don't we? We might discover a lost estate, but do we discern in love? I believe that's kind of what Paul is saying here. We, we do discern, we do judge things righteously, but out of love, there will be a desire for for a heart to be converted, a desire that there's time given. And while there's time given, is there hope? There's hope while there's time given. Absolutely. So Paul is challenging the Philippians here to judge and discern with love. That your love may abound yet more in knowledge and in all judgment and discernment. I thought also about this prior to when we left for the mission four or five years ago. I was at Iola getting a tire bought or repaired or something and there was an individual pulled in in an older 
kind of a clunky pickup from pretty old. And a small, dark-skinned man got out who was probably Hispanic. I was thinking I was were prepared to go to the mission. I thought, well, here's, here's maybe an opportunity to practice, if you will. You know, this guy probably needs the gospel or needs something. I kind of engaged him in conversation, and boy, it wasn't very long into that. He had me stood over on my ear. Pretty feisty guy. He was a believer. I found that out pretty quick. And basically, are you awake? You have a family? You're a believer? Are you awake? Are you raising them? Are you engaged as a father? And what I thought was the potential for me to share gospel truth to him, he was really challenging me. He wasn't throwing bullets at me, but challenging me. And he was quoting scripture to me. And by the end of the time, I almost thought, you know, our church has a mission down in New Mexico. You want to go? You might be more fit for it than I am. <laughs> but, but the way we judge sometimes, often, if we judge in righteousness and love, sometimes we do so a little wrongly. And really, a few steps then, we realize that, that we can learn in areas where we once judged or discerned. And that's just kind of some thoughts I had with that. Moving on, Paul understands that the love that he experienced and feels and wants to see shown in the Philippian church and shown in other churches in the church today, it begins at the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. It begins at the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. It's not based on the feelings of man, our emotions, but on what Christ has done. Verse 11, he talks about being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus under the glory and praise of God. If you took a glass and packed it full of sand, could you put anything else in there? A rock or little toy or anything? No. If it's full, it's full. To be filled with the fruits of righteousness is a challenge to us, that there's no room for anything else. We have the opportunity for that by the gospel of, of Christ. Fruits of righteousness, a fruit is something that has flavor and nutrients. It's valuable for us physically. Does our life have flavor and nutrients for other people that they can experience, that others can benefit from being around us or our possession of it and they can gain from it. He challenges them to be sincere and without offense. And sincere is kind of representation of inner righteousness. Without offense is a representation of our outer righteousness. All from Christ, not from ourselves. A new heart, remember, a new heart I give you. That inner righteousness is sincerity in our life and living without offense in the way that we conduct our life with others, it shows. It begins inside and begins to show outwardly. And sometimes that's a work. It's a work for me. I don't do that very well. It comes down to yielding to Jesus Christ. And the flesh often gets in the way of that. But this is all for His glory. As Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And as Paul sits there and contemplates his, his lot in that cell, in that cold cell, chained down, not free physically. He thinks of palaces and places. Palaces and places is in verse 13. It says that my bonds in Christ are manifested in all the palace and in all of the places. He doesn't care that he's in prison. He sees the word of truth going out from the pen that he's writing. He sees the influence to the palace, to the king, to the, to the guards that are holding him, and he's joyful. It says that things which have happened unto me have fallen out, rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. One key thing here is Paul doesn't care about himself. Paul doesn't care about himself. He's caught up in the gospel. Put me in prison. I don't care if the gospel is furthered by it. To some degree, that's the lesson I believe we can learn. We don't face imprisonment. We don't. Maybe someday we will. I don't know. We don't now. 
But are we caught up more in the gospel than, than ourselves? That's a lesson I think that, that really hits me between the eyes with, with Paul. It's manifested in palaces and places, even though he was in imprisonment. And the Philippians may have been wondering where the power of God was, because Paul had walked out of prison before. He had been chained up, and the, through prayer, the chains fell off, and he walked out the door and was, was free. And here the Philippians are saying, that's not happening. What's, what's wrong? Well, this letter kind of shares that everything's okay, and it's within, within God's will. Sometimes we don't always get our way. Sometimes we don't get to walk out of the prison. But God's will is still sufficient for us. Paul states that God's hand is certainly still working in his life here. In the furtherance of the gospel, he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, in prison, probably other letters. And these letters have been a testimony to the truth of God throughout time. We're reading them 2,000 years later, and it can impact our heart and influence us. God never wastes our time if we were living for him. He didn't waste the prison time of Paul. He utilized it for his glory. I believe the letters that Paul wrote have led to the conversion of many throughout the centuries. We don't necessarily need an easy path. Boy, that's a challenging thought, isn't it? Because I want an easy path, don't you? We don't necessarily always need an easy path. That's just not the way it is sometimes. And here he's saying also, Paul, words basically, if others could see that Paul is joyful in bonds and still a service to the Lord, he sees that they're becoming more emboldened themselves. Because there was such intense persecution, if you say the right word in front of the wrong person about Christ at that time, you could be in prison or beheaded, and people were fearful. But when they seen Paul so bold from his bonds, it made them be more confident and bold in their faith as well, and that was a glory to God. Paul noticed that in this letter. He even addresses the selfish nature of some in the church. He says, some indeed preach Christ of envy and strife in a sense. Some commentary I read was that believed that there were ministers of the gospel that were kind of glad Paul was in prison because maybe somehow they could surpass him a little bit. And that's, that's not a spirit of, of Christ. It's not of humility. That was a sad thing that he's seen and witnessed. Selfish ambition. Ambition is good, but selfish ambition can be bad. It brings a multitude of problems. A successful image or the furtherance of the gospel and understanding. Paul chose the latter, that the gospel be furthered in understanding and, and bear fruit. A.W. Tozer said once, Dear Lord, I refuse henceforth to compete with any of thy servants. They have larger congregations than mine, so be it. I rejoice in their success. They have greater gifts, very well. That is not in their power nor in mine. I am humbly grateful for their greater gifts and my smaller ones. I only pray that I may use thy glory to thy glory, such modest gifts as I possess. That's a pretty powerful statement and kind of hard to take to heart as I read through that. Wow, that's good. That's really worded really well. Then I sit down and thought about it. Boy, do I do that? Wow. Grateful for their greater gifts and for my smaller ones. I think I need a little sanctification. I think I need a little, a little working of the Lord in my life and in my heart. Paul could see that the gospel was being preached by others more energetically because of his bonds, and he delighted in that. He took joy in that. Another thought is Christ is larger than life. Some places in Scripture says that mortality is swallowed up in life. 
Paul here is ready for death. He knows that it could be possible. The guards could come at any point in time and say, the trial's been commenced. You're going to lose your head at noon today. He knows that. And he's not fearful of it. Paul is ready for death. And he realizes that the work of the established church will continue by the grace of God in his absence. That the work of the church is, is bigger than him. Christ is larger than life. Death is not the defeat for the Christian, but the graduation to glory. We can read ahead a little bit here. I'll go ahead. We do have a little time. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Another famous statement of Paul. But if I live in the flesh, that is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Again, as I read through those verses, Paul is not thinking about himself here. He's saying about going to be with Christ or helping out the believing church. That's it. He don't care about himself. That just that hit me between the eyes so many times. But his desire is, is the, better, the, the better coming glory of being with Christ, to dwell with him eternally, to live as Christ and to die as gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with, with Christ our Lord. Some preach of, and believe in, in soul sleeping that upon death you just kind of lay in wait until the resurrection. And there is a resurrection, but I believe the soul, the the breath of man goes back to God who gave it. And Paul pretty much emphasizes this. To die is gain. The straight betwixt the two to depart and to be with Christ instantaneously. That gave him a bedrock of faith, a bold confidence in the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. You might say that Paul was homesick for heaven as he was consecrated for Christ. Heaven where there's no temptation, where he can see brothers and sisters who have gone on before. What about Stephen? I thought about that. He longed, I know he longed to see Christ. What about Stephen? You know? Brother Stephen, now I call you brother in heaven. Remember that time that stones were cast and I, you know, I got converted, I changed, and I'm here now. Just a thought. I don't know, maybe that's out of line. George Beverly Shea sang at Billy Graham events before, and there's a song that he's saying that I, I really have been challenged by. I don't have it memorized, but it says, Oh, beloved enemy, oh, how I hope and pray that you would come and walk with me the bright and shining way. Oh, beloved enemy. And that's a love Jesus said is different than the world has, to love your enemies. And it's, it's natural for Christ as he was crucified and said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. The same thought of that song, beloved enemy, I would give of myself that you would come and walk with me. Wow. I think of Paul sitting there as kind of as if a ship in port, pulling at the moorings, pulling at the anchors, longing for the open seas as he looks heavenward. I'm, I'm made and created for, for dwelling with God in Christ. Cut the chains loose and let me go. That's kind of seemed to be his heart. Just like a ship, it's, it's safe in harbor, but it's not made for the harbor, it's made for seas. We're designed to live eternally in heaven, really. We're here now, we have a place now, we have a calling here now, a life to live for, for the kingdom here. And the kingdom begins here, but yet we have citizenship in our, our home in heaven. 
We live and long for that just as, as, as Paul did. Conclusion of these thoughts. Joyfully consecrated in Christ and just the example that Paul has and the delight that he has in seeing the church spread and, and grow even in his bonds. The thought that God's not done creating. He creates in our heart a new man, a new woman through his son Jesus Christ. Day in and day out, there's new creations that take place by the gospel of Christ. The process of being sanctified for his glory. A delight and a rejoicing in the spread of the gospel as Paul spoke about the palaces and the places that it's gone. That we live in such a way that the gospel can come and go as we can be a channel for that for the palaces and the places that we interact with. In preparation for life or death, do we live prepared for life in Christ? Do we live prepared for death in Christ? Are we ready? Are we ready for the calling of today, tomorrow, whatever it might be upon our heart by the Lord to serve Him? You know, the Bible talks about being a living sacrifice for Him. And that's, that's our calling day in and day out, a living sacrifice. We're alive. We're quickened by the Word of God. May we be a living sacrifice for Him while we have life and opportunity on this earth.